Welcome to Venture in the South, a podcast about startup investing in the southeastern United States. Our hosts are experienced angel investors with over 90 startup investments. We'll share some Southern wisdom while exposing you to the vibrant startups here in the South. Hey, listeners, Venture in the South is going to weekly releases of our podcast, so we hope you'll listen every week. Welcome to Venture in the South, a podcast about angel investing in the southeastern United States. On this episode, I'm putting David in the angel investor hot seat and asking him the questions we ask angel investors about how they became an angel investor, why and what they like doing about uh, angel investing. So, David, uh, first question for you. Can you just give the listeners a quick background on you? Sure. So I have kind of an eclectic background. Um I'm a physician by training, uh, practiced for about 34 years, um, frustrated with the current environment and wanted to work for myself. Um, I've been an investor all my life, uh, mainly in publicly traded equities, but I became inv- interested in venture investing in um, the early 2000s and um, read a lot about it, started looking for deal flow, struggled a lot with that, moved to South Carolina and discovered uh, Venture South. And so after being a member of Venture South for, I don't know, a year or two, I decided I need to learn more about this, went and got my MBA at Clemson and started devoting a lot of time to angel investing. And over the last couple of years, accumulated about 43 investments and became interested in doing a fund. And so that's the main thing I do now. Now, I also have a a business with my son, a medical services online business. We do concierge uh, care and also medical tourism. But that's that's basically what I do now. Okay. So what was it that prompted you to to go all in on the angel investing side? Well, uh, I wanted to do something where I worked for myself. Um, and that involves starting a business, which I did with my son, which has been hugely instructional and learning a lot about startups by, by having our own. And we're still working on that. Um, but the other aspect of it is it's a lot of fun dealing with these startups uh, in terms of learning what they're about, what their product uh, fixes, the problems that they're encountering. Uh, th- th- and th- this is very interesting. And oftentimes there's simple solutions that somebody with a little bit of experience can add to the founder. Um, and so the fun part shouldn't be underestimated. But then there's also profit. Uh, so I think that. When you're properly diversified, angel investing is a nice component of a diversified portfolio. So I invest in public equities. That's probably the majority of my my asset distribution. I have significant real estate investments, but angel investing is probably about a third of my assets, maybe a little bit less. Uh, and I really enjoy it. And I've had some good exits. And so I'm encouraged by that. And so that's why I do it. Okay, great. So I think you're an unusual guest for us because most of the angel investors we talk to are not full-time um, super angels in the way you are. So how do you do things differently now that you do this full-time than you used to when you were starting out as a more sort of passive part-time investor? Well, I think when I when I first uh, 
started investing, it was all based on on data, you know, things like uh, published uh, company data and things like that, and doing doing analysis, um, financial analysis. And I wasn't very good at it, and I got better at it when when I got my MBA and and learned how to do it properly. But even then, it requires experience. But angel investing is a different type of analysis, and uh, I learned a lot about that in my MBA. But there's nothing quite like doing it to really make it stick. And so I think the biggest challenge I had in starting out in 2015 was knowing what are the key things that I need to know about a startup. And it gets back to kind of the the basic things that you hear all the time about startups, a team, a product, market fit, um, the go-to-market plan, their exit strategy, um, you know, their execution, those kinds of things are the most important. And I want to see numbers. I don't want to see predictions. You know, an idea is not what I'm interested in investing in. I'm interested in something that's proven. Um, so that's what I've learned over the last six years of angel investing is fine tuning that process and making a better choice of startups to invest in. Okay, got it. I think anybody who's listened to prior episodes of the podcast will know your favorite part of angel investing is QSBS related issues. What, but what else? What, what else is your favorite part about angel investing? I think that I think the favorite part f- for me is the challenge of diligence on uh, these companies and discovering um, what really makes them attractive or not attractive. You know, looking at the wrinkles, the warts, and uncovering the gems. Um, that's that's very uh, interactive and it's a little bit like solving a puzzle. And oftentimes when we're doing diligence, the company themselves don't really understand some of the warts uh, that they have in their business. And we help bring that to the fore. We don't find everything. Um, we certainly have unsuccessful investments. But one thing I would say that that is true about the angels that I've worked with and Venture South and you, Paul, is that we're pretty good at filtering out bad prospects. So I think that is our major strength is filtering out bad prospects and enriching the pool so that the chance of success is greater. And, you know, if you look at data from the Angel Capital Association nationally, the failure rate of startups in angel groups is significantly over 50%. And in our experience, it's been a little bit less than 50%. So I think that um, the, the best explanation for that is we're, we're, we're a little bit better than others at filtering out <laughs> not so great prospects. Okay, got it. Um, is that the part of the process you find the hardest or is there other pieces of angel investing that you find hard? Um, I think... I think the diligence is the hardest part, um, but it's also hard to screen these groups because, you know, they're, you're, you're getting a, a two-minute uh, over-the-transom pitch to try to decide which should you give them a 30-minute opportunity to, to present their pitch deck and answer questions. I think that's, that's hard, too, uh, because it's a small snippet of information. Sometimes it's easy, but sometimes it's hard. Um, so that's also hard. And then I think uh, it's also hard when it comes down to, are you going to commit capital? 
uh, particularly if you have a couple of good choices and you have a limited amount of capital, which one are you going to devote it to? Are you going to split it between them? What, what are you going to do? Uh, and so I think that allocation of the capital can sometimes be um, a hard decision because not, not because you have good and bad, but because you have good and good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, what would you say is your biggest mistake so far? It's hard to narrow it down to one. <laughs> Good. That's another excellent dodge from David. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think that uh, the 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 com the, the the most common mistakes I've made is um, banking on the founder and not emphasizing um, the other factors like product market fit, uh, their the go to market strategy, um, things like that. The 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 team is extremely important, but by itself can't be successful. So they have to have some of these other factors. And so I think that's been a, a mistake that I've made. I've also made the mistake of investing in drugs. And so I think that's a <laughs> that's a bad thing for angel investors. It, it doesn't work. Uh, I think you can invest in uh, medical science and biopharma and things like that in the right circumstances, uh, devices, but you have to be extremely selective because the cycles, the investment cycles are extremely long. The regulatory cycles are extremely long. The sales cycles are extremely long. There's just all kinds of things that make it a 10 to 15 year investment and very capital intensive, which is not what angel investing is about. Angel investing is not capital intensive and it has a time horizon of five to seven years. Got it. We're way off the uh, scripted questions at this point. So I'm just going to throw a few random questions at you so far. Um, what do you think is your favorite investment that you've made so far? Um, in terms of naming the company, my favorite is um, Punchlist. Okay. And the reason uh, I love it is because they identified a problem that was a big problem in a market that was a premium market and there was very little competition and they've built a nice combination of moats to protect their business, both uh, IP and first to market movers advantage. Um, and, you know, they had some leadership issues uh, in their growth cycle and they uh, effectively addressed that uh, in, a, in a cooperative way. And they got a leader who has just absolutely launched that business like a rocket. And, uh, you know, they, I think their original valuation was somewhere around uh, $8 million. And mm-hmm. they just now got a commitment to, I think it's a, a, a round or, or uh, not sure, but uh, with a valuation of $115 million. So they're going to get a $30 million uh, round of investment. And so... Um, you got to love that, but also it's 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 great to see the development of this company and the way they've solved problems and and fix this problem of getting a, a house that's in the midst of a sale um, repaired so that you can close on the deal. So it's an environment that is a premium environment, um, and they provide an awesome service with a estimate in hours and they can get the work done in days um, and the realtors are happy the sellers are happy the buyers are happy 
it's an amazing win and they've uncovered, uncovered other markets now that they can tap into that are parallel that can fuel their growth in the future. So I honestly think they're likely to be a billion dollar business and, um, you, you gotta love them. Okay, great. Heard it here first, Dave's unicorn prediction for the day. Venture in the South is brought to you by the Rolling South Fund, a rolling fund focused on Southern startups. The fund allows for quarterly investments with a minimum of just $5,000. For more information, visit rollingsouth.vc. How do you, how do you, so you mentioned allocating capital between two good deals and struggling to figure out which one or how you divide things. It's sort of similar to that. How do you allocate money between the first time you invest in a company and follow-on rounds and other later opportunities? Now, that's a great question. Uh, difficult to answer. Um, I, the, you know, I think about that. I try to keep dry powder for follow-on investments because one thing that we have the opportunity as as regular angel investors is we're seeing this progression over time. Some companies are winning, some are not. And some are winning a lot. And for example, I referred to Punchlist. They're winning in a big way. And so it made a lot of sense for me to take some of the dry powder and rededicate that to uh, Punchlist in, in their latest round and, and, and invest that in a follow-on investment. And so I do do that. The downside is it's not QSBS eligible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it, it's potentially a big winner. And so, you know... Are you really afraid to pay tax on a big win? Probably not. Um, you know, you want to share the glory a little bit with the government, I suppose. <laughs> but um, I think that that follow-on investing is an important aspect that angels have to pay attention to because you're focusing your assets on winners. Now, just because they won in the first three years doesn't mean they're going to win at five to seven years because we've seen some smoking hot failures uh, at seven <laughs> years. Um, and so... You still need to be careful, but I think it's an important part and you need to reserve, I would say, somewhere around a third to half of your resources for follow-on investments. Okay, great. We'll probably have an episode about follow-on strategies at some point uh, in the future too. Uh, one of the things I've noticed running diligence processes at Venture South is that physicians like to volunteer for medical-related um, diligence projects. Uh, my question for you is, should we listen to them during those processes or ignore them? Um, I think it's a complicated question. Uh, physicians tend to pontificate because they have experience and success, and uh, they sometimes come away with their experience and success in one area and thinking, well, you know, if I can be an expert in this, I can be an expert in other things too. And that's generally not the case. Um, and, and as an example, uh, we recently did diligence on a company that had uh, – an, an ophthalmologic product, so a product for the eye. And it was kind of innovative. Uh, it, it addresses a significant problem. Um, and, and so we were, we were presenting the product to a couple of ophthalmologists to get their feedback. And the question was, can you tell us if these images are adequate quality for you to make a judgment? And one ophthalmologist um, gave us very direct feedback, no which is exactly what we wanted. The other ophthalmologist gave us a long dissertation about the business model 
And that wasn't what we were asking. Right. And I don't think he was qualified to comment on that. And so I really didn't put much credence in it. Not that, you know, he does, he doesn't, he can't have an opinion, but that wasn't the question. And so I think that's the challenge in dealing with, with physicians is they, they have experience and they sometimes think that with that experience, they can be experts in other areas. And that's not necessarily the case, but they do have experience in healthcare. And if you're looking at something like an ophthalmological product, it makes sense to have an ophthalmologist involved in your diligence process. But again, with those caveats, you need to focus on the expertise they have. Now, some physicians are quite eclectic and they have a, a broad interest and they look at a lot of different things in the healthcare area and they can bring relevant information. So they deal with patients and so they they can have insights into product market fit that you know, the average bear may not. Um, and so to go back to the ophthalmologic thing, one of the things that came up in our diligence, and this was me as a physician going, well, you know, you say this is easy to use, but have you sat there and seen how long does it take for them to take this picture? And he didn't know because mm -hmm. he hadn't sat there and watched them. No. And that's like huge. I mean, the, in the doctor's office, they, they want something to be easy and simple, and they want the staff to be able to do it. They, they only want the doctor doing things that requires a medical license. Everything else they want to delegate, and it makes sense to delegate. Right. Um, so th that's, yeah. That's okay. So sometimes if they know what they're talking about, listen to the physician. Okay. I'm, I'm happy to accept that. And a totally unrelated question. Um, I think you set a goal to work on a hundred diligence teams. That's at, right. At Venture South. How are you getting on with that goal? Um, you know, I haven't counted it up lately, but I think I'm at about 45 or so. Okay. So maybe 50, maybe Pretty halfway good. close. Okay. Um, and of those, um, do any stand out as um, a particular learning experience or a, a, um, a company that you just knew instantly wasn't going to get through diligence or some horror story from those processes? Um, no horror stories. There, there are a few that I knew right away uh, I wasn't going to invest in and, and weren't going weren't gonna to make it. Um, it was very obvious. That's not common because they usually don't make it to diligence in that situation. Um, but th there are some there are some great diligence teams that I've participated with that, uh, particularly in the last I would say three to four years. Um, it used to be early on in my experience at annual investing that we would have a team of maybe three or four people. But now that the Venture South group is over four hundred members. It's not at all common to have eight or nine people on the diligence team, and we have people with deep expertise. And so, uh, if, if for an example, we did diligence on uh, HopDrive, which is a service for delivering vehicles. So it's sort of like Uber, but instead of delivering people, you're delivering vehicles. And um, I was so impressed with that team. We had people in the auto industry, in the dealership industry, in the car servicing industry, uh, in in SaaS, uh, all the things that that came to play on that. And, and I don't know anything about auto industry, really. I have no expertise there. I don't have any particular expertise in SaaS. And so it was hugely educational and very impressive the way we were able to bring together those resources and, and bring that to bear on a... Uh, company that really is kind of cutting edge and they're kind of developing a new market. Um, and you could, 
you could question whether this is really a viable business, but I think that we we are all convinced that this guy, the the CEO, is onto something here. Okay, got it. Yep. Having surrounding yourself in diligence with people that have opinions that you value is a good thing to do. Uh, so, last question for you: What is the goal for you from your angel investing activity for the next five years? Um, I want to establish. Um, this fund that we're doing together, Paul, uh, as a successful fund that I can pass on to my son. My son is also interested in angel investing. He also has an MBA and he operates a business with me. And so this is my legacy to pass on to my son. Great. Uh, I'm not going to give it to him, but um, <laughs> I will sell it to him. Um, <laughs> but it will be an opportunity for him to have uh, the life that I think he wants, which is working for himself, um, doing something fun. He likes uh, startups and innovation. He's an engineer. And so he's, he's a tinkerer by nature. Um, and so that's my, my personal goal. Um, you know, I'm, I'm of, of an age where people retire, but I don't particularly have any interest in retirement because I want to be active and do stuff because to me, that's what's worth living for. I don't know, you know, playing golf, it doesn't do it for me. Um, so doing this kind of thing keeps me very active and it's profitable. It's fun. And I feel like I'm doing a lot of good. So I'm, I'm checking the three boxes that we, yep. we said we would check. Right. Great. Well, David, um, thank you for sharing those things with with the listeners there's several subjects in there that we'll tackle on some other podcasts but it's always great to know the people behind the activities that are going on so thanks for doing that and i'd just say it's a pleasure for me to be involved in a community of people like you and particularly working with you um this stuff is fun but it's also more fun with people involved so um thank you for doing that thank you paul and if you enjoyed this episode of Venture in the South, uh, we would uh, like to invite you back to listen to future episodes as well. You can subscribe to us or, or leave us feedback and we will be back in your ear soon. This podcast is supported by Venture Carolina, an educational nonprofit focused on angel investors and entrepreneurs. Our team is built from successful entrepreneurs, investors, venture capitalists, board members, and executives that want to give back. Thank you for listening. Please consider subscribing and leaving us a review. Visit us at ventureinthesouth.com for a complete list of previous and future shows and contact us if you have any comments or a request. <laughs>